course. Today we have a very special guest in Lauren Green, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing his story, both where he's been, what he's working on, and kind of the state of the game of both data and sports science and how it integrates into kind of a larger paradigm, particularly here in the U.S. college market. So without further ado, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Thomas, thanks for having me. So I got to ask, you know, we talk about this all the time on each episode, but what was your kind of uh, moment, that iron bug moment where you got bit, where you said, I want to be in athletics? And particularly, could you tell us a little bit about your journey? Because it's kind of unconventional in the sense that you have both the applied um, side of things on coaching, but also pretty heavy in, in the kind of math, science and statistics, um, which isn't really common, particularly um, in the collegiate setting to have someone who's kind of got two hats um, that they wear. So could you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, so I think um, in some ways, my, my story is very similar to a lot of others, uh, where grew up as playing sports, uh, was a baseball player, uh, primarily played uh, basketball, some sports growing up, but got in high school, played uh, basketball for a couple of seasons, but played baseball throughout my life. Um, and part of what I think I found later on in life, learning about myself a bit more is that um, I really enjoyed the skill acquisition part of baseball. It's a high skill game with, with uh, uh, dashes of, of athleticism that can improve it. Um, and so for me, I played growing up with, and it's pretty, this is, I'd say, anomaly um, of the Little League that I played at. Uh, and this is, you know, ages eight to 13 or so. Um, from the age groups, three years above me and three years below me, uh, we had three major league players. Um, I think about 10 guys drafted in the major league baseball draft. We had two guys go to the NFL, another guy go to the NBA. I mean, it was just athleticism bound, right? Um, and what I learned growing up is as gifted as I was, there's always someone more gifted and better and faster and stronger. Um, and so again, the part of the baseball that got me was there's ways to have success without being the biggest, fastest, strongest um, and ways to, uh, to gain skill. Um, and so in my kind of journey to gain more and more skill came a cost of, of work volume, uh, um, which I, got hurt a bunch, <laughs> um, which left me a lot of time in the training room, which left me a lot of time to sit and look at all the diagrams on the wall and talk with the athletic trainers and talk with strength coaches and team coaches. Um, and, and really what it kind of came down to is, as I got through college, uh, played Division two college baseball at St. Cloud State, Minnesota, um, and got through college and, and got to a point where I said, you know what, I, I don't think I'm as good as these other guys. These guys that are pros are, they're pros. They are really, really good, but I, I do love being in the sport. I love uh, uh, the competition aspect of it, but I love the skill acquisition, the teaching aspect of it. Um, coming from a, a background of, of teachers, my grandmother was a teacher, uncle taught, uh, mom coached little league softball on my teams for years. Um, it kind of felt like a natural progression to get into the coaching side of it, where not only could I continue to hone my knowledge of, of the game um, and outcomes, but also how do I impact others that are coming up behind, um, and whether that be other coaches and players. Um, and so led me to the path of coaching. Um, and really that's, that's where it sparked. Um, it went from just kind of having this, this uh, urge to stay in the game and kind of fulfill legacy and liking to help others in coaching and to going, I got taught things that I didn't understand why. I got told things they said just because. And now that I'm in a position to make decisions, I don't know why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking or what I'm doing the way I'm doing it. Um, and so I had a lot more questions, which I think we all kind of, kind of feel that when you get to the real world and go, all right, I'm not prepared for any of this. Uh, I got a lot more to learn. I had a lot of questions um, and, and that I've always been inquisitive in that manner. Um, and 
I guess secondarily to this or maybe uh, primary, um, I, I did throughout school years really just excel in math and sciences. Uh, that part kind of came naturally to me. I'm more an analytical thinker in that way. I think one plus one is two. Um, I'm not one of those that's as artistic where they can see and sound and, and hear colors. <laughs> I'm not one of those. Uh, but so um, all my questions turned into very logical, true, false, yes, no, um, cause and effect type questions. And so obviously that um, in a scientific manner, that's where you kind of start to lay your head more and more. And I was just fortunate enough to be around a lot of uh, professionals and practitioners that were of a high level. So um, that part's not of, of any of my doing. That's, that's fortune and, and, and luck where I was able to ask good questions to the right people that gave me good questions in response to send me in the right direction to find better answers. Um, and so I think that, you know, in a very abstract way, it was kind of the path where it went from, uh, as we all were being coached as an athlete growing up, um, hearing things going, okay, yeah, sure. To get to the point where I'm putting it to use, uh, till I couldn't put it to use anymore. Um, until now I'm at a point where I can share it with others and, and continue to question myself, question things I've learned, question conventional knowledge and, and try to advance it. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really where I'm at now. One of the things that I really, you know, appreciate that when you speak is that you you've done a lot and and you're also one of the most humble people that i've met because you kind of just lightly glazed over some of the other things that you've done from a coaching standpoint um but your hunger um matched with your humility is a really odd combo and usually it's one or the other or sometimes um neither so the fact that you've had this kind of inquisitive mind of one plus one you didn't say one plus i don't care one plus good enough, um, you know, you try to find the answers. And sometimes it's not about having the answer right away, but it's logging those questions or those patterns that you see where you can't really ignore them, but there's no answer yet, but let, let's just shelf that. And I think that that's something that as we go forward and talk about data and its role, there's really a duality to kind of any sports science or data paradigm where you're going to have known knowns where you're going to go out and if this happens, then I will do this intervention. But there's also these detections of patterns and trends that, you know, aren't in the double blind, you know, research papers. And we just know for a fact that, you know, when the study comes out and says that there's no lat activation um, in the deadlift, you're like, well, but every person I know that deadlifts 500 pounds has a really big back. So maybe, maybe that was a faulty study, or maybe I'm going to look at that with a little bit of um, scrutiny. And, and I just, I think it's really great. And, and I'd love for you just to kind of talk about, you know, when you got that first job and whether it's either on the coaching side or when you really kind of got into the sports performance data side, what were some of the things you started working on and things that you did kind of early on in your career? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think from the beginning, honestly, um, I actually, my first experience as a coach, uh, which was actually before I started coaching, I uh, was still playing, finishing my last year playing at St. Cloud State. Uh, and I at first had the idea I wanted to get into coaching. Uh, and I went to our strength conditioning coach and said, you know, hey, I'd love if I could shadow you, mentor, just whatever, just to get my feet wet, get in the door. Obviously, I have classes and things, but, you know, what can I do to be around? And, and he tasked me with, hey, this, I just, you know, I want to get to know you better from your training mind and, and knowledge and blah, blah. Obviously, he's trained me as an athlete, but again, I'm, I'm in a position of receiving knowledge, not sharing and disseminating. Um, and so he goes, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm working on women's soccer's uh, 
spring program or summer program right now, I want you to go ahead and just write a, a phase of that. Give me a, give me a four week block of what you think the program should look like or should entail. Um, and so I, I go back home and I'm, yeah, I play baseball. I don't know soccer. I know soccer. We got to run. We got to kick. We got to change direction. I'm thinking of these things, you know, needs analysis. And at the time, I wasn't aware of it. Um, like, oh, what, you know, what do I need to train for soccer? Right. Um, and I, I put together this hodgepodge of exercises. I go, all right, well, and I was like, get hamstrings and groins, and I better train this and train that. Uh, we're going to do some hinges. We're going to do some lateral. We're going to blah, blah. And I, I get together this this uh, program and I take it back to the strength coach and, and he goes, oh, great. I'm looking at these things. Uh, yeah, I know the exercises. Why? And I go, well, because you know, that's for this and this is for that. And I think I mentioned something about, uh, uh, this exercise being for, um, mobility. And, and, and he goes, well, don't know if you quite understand that the, the how mobility should be used in this terminology um, because what you just described was um, uh, translation and wasn't joint articulation, something like that. Um, and he just kind of stops and goes, you know, I, I didn't expect to put together a program. This was just an exercise. He goes, but what I do want you to start doing is, is thinking backwards and drawing a roadmap. You can't draw a map to a destination that you don't know where it is or where you're trying to go. So you just put together this, this list of instructions and this, this path without really a clear destination of where you wanted it to go or where you wanted to start at. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is that was from a coaching perspective, my first time where I started asking myself why and not regurgitating the exercises that I'd seen before or what had come across. Um, and sort of think back of well, why did my coach program those hinges for me? Is it just because it's a hinge and it's it's a pattern we need to do um, because that's what lifting says? Or is there a point of transference where this goes back into sport that this is aiding me, increasing my resiliency or, or um, adding some piece of, of athleticism that I don't already have or need to expand upon? Um, and so really that kind of led me in that path. And honestly, you know, obviously just like you tell us I talk about now, I still, to this day, still have that same process that goes in my head of where are we going first? Um, now, with that said, if we evolved and I road trip quite a bit, but if we road trip before, all right, I know what destination I'm going on. And luckily with today's magical technology, you know, we could have to use a Thomas guide or a paper map. We can, we can GPS things and map it out. But the same way is, I mean, I, it's a habit now myself and my fiance, well, we're going to go to a restaurant around the corner, but you'll put it in the GPS just to see what's happening along the way or what's the best route to get there. That general knowledge and understanding, which is gathering data, implement or analyzing and implementing it into action <clears throat> is really something we do all the time. And getting into coaching really opened my eyes into how often we can do that and how impactful it can be um, when I take these few small steps in this direction to start, how that changes my path or how that can, can uh, really deviate what my path looks like moving forward towards the goal. Now, the destination doesn't always going to be a straight line. It never is. But if uh, I remember this from, I think it might have been, I forget which class, it was math class in high school, but the old uh, plane leaves LAX and is going to New York, um, you know, if it leaves three degrees, three radiants off, you know, north, it's going to end up in, in Buffalo or in Canada somewhere. If it goes three radiants down south, it's going to end up somewhere in Virginia or, or Maryland. Um, and so this idea of 
you know, understanding where I am um, and, and perspective to where my goals are, and then collecting information to give me the best uh, points of action along the way. Um, and, you know, all that is very abstract in general, but in reality, that's all we're doing with data collection and with analysis is where they said, we're taking these gnomes. I know where I'm at. I know where I want to go. I know that it's west of me or east of me or wherever it is. I know that there's land or sea or mountains in between us. What's my best course of action? What's my what do I need with me on this trip? All right, now those are variables. So if I take this with me, what do I have access to? What don't I have access to? Um, if I'm using this modality of training versus that modality of training, what are the strengths of this and what are the weaknesses of that? And what's that going to yield for me possibly moving forward? And how does that set me up for further progression or regression? Um, and so just that thought process has, has really stayed with me. And um, it started right from the beginning. And obviously, they, I, I said I glossed over quite a bit of stuff. Um, uh, but from moving in from that college perspective, got into coaching the private section the private sector um, and working with college amateurs and pros and high school, things like that. Uh, and just seeing the diversity of athletes and not only that, the diversity of, uh, or the variance, I should say, of the results that they'll get from similar training, similar time. Um, again, the, the, the amount of work that a professional baseball player because I use for example but major league baseball player can get in 20 minutes of fielding practice fielding ground balls compared to a high school kid um, is it's night and day it's not even close now the volume of work is the same and they might even take the same amount of ground balls but the quality is what can really make a difference there could you build off that? Because I think that's often one of the big dilemmas that I'll hear coaches talk about, which is they need to spend 20 minutes in the weight room. They need to spend 20 minutes on the field. And, you know, every coach wants to do more fitness or cardio or whatever their buzzword is, but there's this kind of land grab for time. But at the end of the day, in the colleges, you know, you got your 8 and 20 for care hours. Internationally, you might have a CBA. Um, in the pro league, same thing. You know, maybe you're unionized, maybe you're not. And so when you say that, what do you specifically mean? Because I think it would be important, you know, in support of the, the sport coaches. Yeah, at some point, it is more important to focus in on those skills. And particularly at the higher levels, there may be a better rationale versus a high school kid who can't touch their toes or can't, you know, move side to side. Maybe it's, it's not that the drill was bad. It just won't synergistically have the same effect as if it were with someone else. So could you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and in reality, let's go back to the knowns and unknowns. We know we have 24 hours in a day. Right? Um, and as you mentioned, like with, with the U.S. college setting our care hours or 20 and 8, um, we used to talk about them as poker chips, right? Or just, you know, chips we can divide up. Our head coach says you get five, you get five, you get three. Um, now, the reality of that, though, is, again, time is equal across the board for everyone. Everyone's got 24 hours. So it's really what do we do with that time? And how is it best utilizing and thinking in that, that stepwise process of what I do today, how that sets me for tomorrow moving forward. Um, the priority of training or the priority of emphasis in that time um, really is dependent on the athlete. And I say that in the sense of we've all got things to improve. We've all got points of weakness and strength. Um, but where is that point of return? In the essence of like really prioritizing our return investment and getting the most out of our time, uh, the, the youth athlete definitely needs skill as much as the pro athlete does. But the pro athlete has years 
and already compounded hours involved. And what we often realize, and I've heard this, this used multiple times, of, you know, Michael Jordan took a thousand shots a day, you know, here coach it to their high school kid or junior high kid. Uh, has that child jumped a thousand times in a day before, let alone skilled jump shots? Um, and in reality, let's just say they did have, or they, they had the time to do a thousand jump shots in a day along with the classwork, blah, blah. Wouldn't they need to be able to do a thousand jumps before they could do a thousand jump shots? Um, and in my estimation, I'm going to get a lot more out of training that the, the child's ability to get, a thousand, get to a thousand jumps as quality as, or as best quality as I can, as quickly as I can, so that then they can start to get to those shots as quickly as they can and with a better fashion than I would as if we just started with a thousand shots. Um, and also, not only that, the repetition of those thousand shots, there's no, there's no variation really. Like a jump shot's a jump shot. I might change the spot on the court, right? So now I'm gonna find ways that I'll get mentally fatigued, find ways to challenge. All right, let's go for makes and misses and blah, blah, blah. Well, I've now taken away the focus from the skill acquisition point to the outcomes, which I know the outcomes are not gonna be at the, the rate that I wish I, that I know they want them to be. And I'm having them do it with a lessened ability um, physically. So if we take that same idea, I can now program jumps with different variations of the ball involved, with different angles, with different, you know, I can, I can play things around. I can do it within tactically within the game um, and different skill aspects but make the focus be about the, the base foundation of what needs to happen in the sport, being the athleticism, um, and allow them to grow into the skill repetitions that are, that are there um, through the, the physical maturation. Uh, and again, if we kind of circle this back into our, our idea of, of how much time in the day and, and how this work gets really put together, uh, I can't stress enough how simple the best coaches and programs I've been around have made it. <laughs> gotta go. I know exactly where you're going. You gotta share this. Because I share this all the time. If you look at the best coaches, they might like raise their finger. They make one cue. There's like two drills, but it's like Mr. Miyagi level wax on, wax off. And that's in order to like shoot a lacrosse ball. Like I don't get it. It's it's pretty it, wild. <laughs> so I mean I'm working, I'm in the Dodgers organization and 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 I mean, I see these world-class, you know, skilled athletes. And uh, at the time, I was with um, I was our Dominican, I was our Latin American coordinator. So I was with some of the Dominican kids as they came across, or I should say our Latin players, most of the Dominicans, as they came across to play their first year rookie ball in the States. Um, and they see some of the big leaders that are taking reps that are either rehab guys still in spring training or around. Um, and I remember sitting next to a couple of guys and they go, man, he's just kind of moving through lazy and slow. And I go, no, if, if you stop and watch, just 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 actually, no, let's go walk over here. And we're kind of staying off to the side from the foul line and just watching them. And I go, just watch where the ball lands in his glove. I mean, I'm oh, sorry, I jumped part of, this is just a coach just tapping fungos at him from behind shortstop to the left field, just rolling balls out like it's kindergarten like or like it's little league. And he's taking very slow, methodical approaches to the ball. And every time he just slowly puts his glove out in front and watches the ball hit him in the same center spot of the glove every single time on the same step, left foot pulling up to his right hand, no bobbles, no move. And the ball is right in the seam where he wants on his fingers every single time. And we're talking three, four minutes of work. And there's been 15 perfect repetitions. And his mind, he gets done with the 15th and goes, talks to the coaches. Yeah, I'm still working on this, this, and that. And the the, the rookie guys are doing, what, working on stuff. Like you were just, he goes, 
the amount of attention to detail and the amount of things that are happening here, I can't make it any more complicated than can I get to the ball at the right spot at the right time? Can I catch the ball in my glove at the right spot? Can I get my hand there at the right time so I can throw it back to the person so they can catch it? It's a very simple game. <laughs> and there's so much involved. The more complicated we make it, the harder it can become. And the more we can get away from those foundational pieces that can get us there. At the end of the day, all these specifically a ground-based sports. We're, we're jumping, we're lunging, we're twisting, we're, we're running and turning, uh, and the, just human locomotion patterns that we're now applying to an implement, applying to a ball, a racket, a stick, um, to execute a high-level skill at a, at a fast pace that really it makes it hard to do if you don't have the foundational pieces there to begin with. And, and so going back to the beginning of the journey, um, kind of having my eyes opened up every step of the way, where they've been from major league baseball to basketball, NBA, and seeing these elite level players and coaches just talk about the most foundational and fundamental things and practicing the most fundamental things every day. It, it kind of sent me backwards to go, well, why am I wasting, not even waiting in the point where you almost say, why am I wasting my time? Because it's only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> we know that's given. If this person making millions has got to the point where they're just worried about lifting the ball off my fingertips or, or you know, or stepping in this direction or that direction, uh, what am I worried about some of the more complicated things versus can they physically handle the demands that they're asked to do to meet the repetition volume that they need to get to get to the skill level that they need to have so that they can compete at the level that they're at? Yeah, and, and I mean, I wonder too, because I, I watched the same phenomena happen. And kind of my thought is, I wonder when you first start a sport, nobody knows anything. So you work on the fundamentals. And usually you're younger-ish when you do that. So if you gain the skills, you tend to play more. You, you've acquired some of these skills. But then whether it's puberty, whether it's training, we kind of get this middle ground of amateur junior competition where the faster, the stronger, the taller they can get away with things just simply because they can overpower or outspeed or out repetition somebody. But then as that filtration happens again through say collegiate into professional, it kind of normalizes again back to childhood where you just can't get away with the shenanigans because everybody's six, four, yeah. like you have to be on mm -hmm. point. And so there's this return to fundamentals, which to your point, you know, can you do the fundamentals right? Or can you do them till they can't get it wrong? And when you're in that kind of time where, well, I watched, it looks really cool. It looks different. I want to try that. Yeah, can you? Yeah. And if you're in division five, Vermont, you might be able to get away with that <laughs> compared to the Dominican, you know, top league team. And so I think that it's important for coaches to remember where are you in this development continuum, but ultimately as you go up to the higher levels, you pointed out, nobody forgets how to play. They break down. And so they're no longer to handle the demands but those fundamentals are there, that selected evolution of certain traits and characteristics physically and skill, you know, are there. And it's and then it's a decay effect. And so can you stretch that from two to three years out to five, out to 10 or out to 20? And, and I think coaches need to be aware of that because um, very quickly you can go down the wrong rabbit hole of the new shiny thing. Yeah, and I think part of uh, I had this this well, almost got this put up on a poster in our office in San Diego. Um, I can't remember what you just said, remind me, but it was a quote from uh, Bruce Lee that I had seen. I was talking about this with one of our very experienced coaches because um, I'm standing actually now with USA Volleyball, Miles Cooper. And uh, we go back to this over the past three years I worked with him, but 
Bruce Lee quote where he says, when I was a beginner in martial arts, it was all simple. And as I became a professional, it became very complicated and very hard. And as I became a master, it all became simple with you. Um, and it just, just took the same evolution you were saying of like in the beginning. It's, and this, this goes along with kind of the, the pathways of learning or learning processes where you have this uh, experimental and, and uh, approach in the beginning where everything is new all over the place, erratic. I don't know what's going on. Um, if I have success or if I have positive outcomes, it's on accident, right? And then I get to this point of like, I think I'm starting to get it. I did something. I think I know why I did it right. Let me tell that didn't work. And I'm going to keep now. I'm, I'm really kind of messing with things around to find success because I think I know what it feels like to when I start to actually know what it feels like. That's the hardest part. Right, because <laughs> I'm still trying to execute the way I want to, or, or execute what I think I know I can do without the uh, uh, the automation that that I want it to be there with, or how I want my brain to tell my body to work still isn't quite there. So once I get to the point where I do have it automated, now this that level of expectation of success is so high that I focus more on that margin of, of failure, and, and the quality of success becomes more of an important piece. Um, and so, again, I have to simplify what those outcomes look like, because I'm not saying that I want success. I want a success in this way. Um, and it's no lie. I've been teaching myself, which is a terrible idea. Don't ever, and no one try this, but try to teach myself golf um, this past year. Uh, and with the aid, of course, because I'm a nerd this way, uh, I've been doing it places that have like the ball flight tracking and all that stuff. So I can see some of the metrics and see how my, my shot is actually, or my stroke is actually changing how I'm hitting the ball over time. Um, and I definitely have gotten to that point now where it was first, I'm just trying to the ball consistently. I didn't care about tracking the ball where it's going. I'm just, I'm hitting the ground, I'm popping in, I'm missing to, all right, well, I'm hitting it, but not really hitting on the club face. Well, now I'm at the point where I can step up and whack the ball, hit on the club face, but is it slicing? Is it pulling? Am I pulling it to the left? Am, am, I, am I underneath it? Did I, did I get hit it fat? Like, is a spin off? And so now I'm looking at these things of how high am I hitting the ball? How far am I hitting it? How much curve is there left or right? Um, which are still very simple things. It sounds complicated and complex in the grand scheme of it if you're new or even in the middle of it because you're trying to manipulate all these things. But I might just say, you know what? I've, I know if I'm hitting the ball higher, I'm hitting it in this manner. And that's all I want to focus on right now. I know if I'm hitting the ball further with this path, I'm hitting it in this manner. And that's what I need to focus on right now. And so really it becomes a game of simplification. And this is all of our skill acquisition. This is all of our, our exercise acquisition as well. Um, and and you know, I'm keeping it in, in context to our audience. It's like whether you're a PT, a, a strength coach, a, a skill coach, it, our goal is not to advance them in our exercises or our programs, our goal is to advance what transfers into the competition, what transfers into the, their outcomes that they can take with them. Um, and I think we can fall in that rabbit hole of, oh man, I know this exercise is it. I've got to train them into that exercise. Well, that exercise is it, quote unquote, because of what you're expecting the outcomes to be from that exercise. Now, what's limiting them from accomplishing that exercise or using that modality, that's what we look at as practitioners to decide if that's the right modality for them. Um, because again, with 24 hours in the day, and as you said, one year, two years, three years, four years, if it takes me, and I, I definitely, definitely don't mean this to, to, to bash on the Olympic lifts, I'll just use this example because of how technical skilled they are and how, how pervasive they are in the industry. But if, if 
I've got a, a from my experience, if I've got a, a rookie a NBA player who's got a very minimal training background um, and he's on a rookie contract, which means he's got technically three years, but really kind of two years with team options. Um, and the goal of an NBA player is to get to a second contract. That's where the money is. That's where you have a career. That's where you're, you know, quote unquote pro player. Um, you've got a career now and get a second contract. So to get that player a second contract, and they're gone most of the offseason because they don't have to be there with you. They might be training with a personal coach or something else, whatever. In season, you're playing three to four games a week, traveling across time zones. You know, <laughs> and they've never played that load before, especially they're playing, especially because um, they played in college. They might play 40. Well, they're going to play 82 uh, in, in or 86 in, in, in the NBA. And that's double the amount within less than a calendar year that they've ever played before. So now I'm going to compound that with the, the volume of skill acquisition that they're facing every day, the, the physical level of competition. And then now I'm going to add in a prescribed stimulus of a highly skilled, uh, a skill that is very uh, highly technical that requires a great amount of central nervous system um, and peripheral nervous system work that has limited time for recovery. And really at that level, if they're still learning it, won't have the amount of, of intensity or low that they would need for the outcomes I would want to get from it anyway. Do I have three years to teach them that, to get to that point to then say, oh, great, now we can clean or now we can jerk. Let's go ahead and do it. They might not be in the team anymore. Um, and so there has to be a point of, of what is worthwhile now uh, and what is what has value to keep moving this athlete forward to buy more time. Right. And I think that you have to ask the question because I, I got to ask that too. Again, you know, what do you think on you know, someone picks an exercise Olympic lifts? I think they're great. I think they serve a really good role. And with, you know, low to moderate training, you can get some sort of effect. But like the big kind of umbrella here, the, the kind of elephant in the room, a basketball player might not want their hands janked up. Like if they've never done that before, the the risk of them jamming their wrists, if they've never done it, or spraining a finger, or just even look at the hands of a power lifter and a weight lifter compared to the hands of an NBA player. Like their fingers are longer, their lever arms are completely different. And we used to have, you know, running backs, um, you know, and if you ever seen a little running back, they got little T-Rex arms. They, some of them physically, anatomically can't reach to their shoulder to rack the bar. So are they going to do it? Absolutely. They're football. They'll push through. But at the same time, they're going to load up their wrists. And now we have a cyst problem or now we have some sort of cartilage. And so I think, too, if you're an athlete and your coach is insistent on, oh, this is the way, you know, follow me, like you got to do this. I think you lose a lot of credibility because there's so many tools in the toolbox right now that your lack of trying to step back. What do you like? What do you hate? Oh, OK. You grew up with Olympic glyphs. Cool. We'll do it. I, I remember Snatch was the same way. We had some guys that were on Olympic weightlifting teams that are young. Okay, cool. We can use that because that's specific to you. And then we'd have other people, to your point, say a quarterback. Uh, if you've never done it and you don't really like it and I'm going to have that bar slam in on the front of your shoulders, like if you're not cool with that, that's going to be a much higher, much more higher risk situation that when I'm looking at kind of all things considered, I might want to consider an alternative for that. And to your point of, can I even get the proper training load to get the effect that I, you know, am claiming that, you know, I can get just because of their lack of familiarity or that kind of, you know, it takes one rep to end a career, that kind of paranoia in the back of your head that you're going to jam something up. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you on that. I think even to simplify that anymore in the sense of, uh, you kind of touched on it. Intent is such 
a driving factor for skill acquisition um, and for learning in general. Um, and if you have an athlete that's apprehensive uh, to a style of training, again, this is a matter of time and situation things, but if, if I'm going back into what's my job as a performance coach, athletic trainer, strength coach, whatever, what is my job here? And what, what is the desired outcome I'm going for? And then looking at what are my tools on my toolbox to accomplish that? Keep it as simple as that, right? Um, and if the goal is to, you know, we talk with the athlete or the coach, we want to improve speed or we want to improve vertical, or we know that there's this KPI of sorts that um, will impact their game or impact their performance or just their effect, right? That's what I'm focused on. And so the, the, the intent in my mind of programming or application or anything else cannot rest on these exercises of what needs to be done or what I've programmed before. It has to be answering the question of what does this athlete need and what tools I have in my toolbox. The right tool for the job is the answer, right? And so, and there's ways you can get things done. I can definitely get a, uh, a Phillips uh, screw, Phillips head screw out with a flathead screwdriver. I, I certainly could. I could use a knife if I had to. I've done it before, but if I have a Phillips head screwdriver there, I'm probably best off grabbing that. Use the right tool for the job. No need to make it more complicated than it is. And I know we're going to talk about this more. Sometimes you might not have that exact tool in front of you, or you might not have the exact resources in front of you. And that's where we need to be resourceful and maybe be creative. But always, if we start simply and say, what do I have in front of me and what's the purpose here? Um, and if I get to a point where I say, like you said, uh, I have this quarterback and we're in our training period and they're, they're apprehensive to this lift, but they're a starting quarterback and I need them primed for this season and for this moving forward and progressing. If I'm spending my time with minimized training load because I'm teaching this lift because, oh, in a year from now, with months and time, we'll get better at the lift. Great. Well, in months and time, while that training load is not there, other people are increasing their training load and increasing their <laughs> performance to where I can now look back and go, oh, great, I've really gotten better at my lift. And now I've really cranked up the training. But in that time, did I get most out of my, of my performance? So I want to kind of take what you just said there and how we kind of look at our tools in our toolbox. And, and you start prioritizing when is it time to use a flathead? When is it time to use a Phillips? When is it time to use a knife? And I think one of the things that impressed me the most is your ability to, to kind of take that old school coaching philosophy and digitize that into dashboards that were meaningful. And when we spoke last at the conference, you know, you had mentioned a whole bunch of different things, but I'd love it if you could just kind of articulate to people kind of some of your early work that you've done. And, and I think that it's also worth pointing out is this is another example of a coach self-teaching themselves, pushing themselves to develop solutions that, you know, weren't currently available and, and how you went about implementing that um, in your next journey. Yeah, so um, I think the, the transition one, I think I know when I, when I was working with the Dodgers as their Latin coordinator, um, I started to, to dabble a bit more into talent ID um, and just looking at their development pathways. Um, the previous years with the Dodgers, I'd worked across um, short season rookie ball, uh, pretty much every level in my league baseball except double A. I've been triple A, uh, high level A, and, and had worked um, a little bit in spring training with the big league club and with our supervisors there. Uh, but now in the Dominican, you have we had an average age of about 16 and a half, 17. So essentially high school juniors and seniors that are on professional contracts. Uh, some similarities to the, to the European academies with soccer. Um, um, so these, these, these guys are under uh, team control. So they're, you know, they're signed Dodgers athletes and players. Um, and 
we had minimal resources because it's the DR. <laughs> so um, some things, and this was actually even more so because they were in the process of building their new facility, which has been upgraded obviously uh, since I was there, but uh, we had 70 some odd players with uh, myself, two assistant strength coaches um, in a weight room that was probably 500, 600 square feet. We had a rack of dumbbells, a couple of benches, um, a squat rack, um, a couple of bikes, you know, like minimal, minimal. Um, it is equivalent of a hotel gym, uh, essentially. Um, the question became, one, how can we identify where these players are going to be in five years? Or, or again, where we know where they want to be, we know where they're at now. How do we start, you know, take those first steps in that direction? Uh, we know the, the, the game demands at the higher levels. Um, we really have zero idea of a lot of players upbringing their medical history or background, some of them their exact age, <laughs> some of those things. Um, and and you know, it's not, not talking maliciously here, but this just is, you know, they don't have the same setup of healthcare and things like that. Um, and so some of these guys you're saying, are, are they done growing? Are they, you know, is have they been lacking in their growth pattern because of malnutrition? Uh, all these a cascade, all these things that come in to make a person, right? And then saying, well, how are we going to maximize first and be millions of dollars athlete? Um, and then can we identify things about any of these athletes to say who is, cause we know statistically they all can't make it. So how do we know who is got a better, who does have a better chance to be one of those guys? Um, and so kind of put this long story short here, we had a, a high level prospect. She's actually in major leagues now, um, or triple A major the best before, but uh, shortstop and signed him uh, at 15 and a half, which is the first legal aid taken sign them at, uh, the first summer. Um, and he was, five, 11 and a half, six foot. Um, so they signed them in sign periods in July. So they get there for a few weeks and they do basically like a training camp and they have a fall camp winter and they get back to the next summer league. Um, and throughout that time, you know, the, the coaches kept going, man, I swear we take two steps forward, one step back or a step forward, two steps back every day. We're working on his ground ball mechanics and he just, he, he gets in a great position one day and then, then he's not there. And then we're constantly chasing our tail with this. Um, and I just remember anecdotally going, he looks taller, right? And they're like, okay. I'm like, well, no, like he looks significantly taller. When's the last time we've measured him? And so the next summer comes around and he's six, one and a half, six, two, right? And I go, just again, not trying to over-scientifically think this here, but if I'm practicing a drill that requires me to approach a ball coming at me at X speed, and I got to go this distance to get there again, to get that ball right at that little point, And I now change everything by a few inches this way and change the rate, <laughs> decrease the movement. It, it just changes that you're, you are, you're relearning the skill over and over again. Um, and long story short was we hadn't even been tracking simple things of body weight and height, right? Of maturing athletes. It, it's not, it doesn't need to be rocket science. I'm not worried about cleans or anything else. Again, all this stuff can come into it, but how do I know this would be a good time to even teach a clean if the guy's gonna be growing two more inches in the next six months? <laughs> Do I want to put that type of stress on on on, on their uh, on their on their bones on the tissues, uh, or is there a more uh, appropriate stress that can allow them again? They still got to play games for this time. They're still developing skill They don't. They're not going to be there. Can I get the best bang for my buck in their maturation pathway with a certain tool versus another? And the only data I needed for that really was again just looking at 
if I could, if I had guys early enough, could we calculate peak height velocity? Um, could we at least get some trend of growth? Are they still growing if some of them plateau? And guess what? That goes down to town ID into to the scout, scouts. Hey, Scout, you draft, you, we signed the draft this kid at 16 and they've still kept growing. Drafting at 16 and they still haven't grown or they stopped growing. You know, most likely they're still going to grow some more, but you know, you, you, you're getting mappy and looking out and going, all right, this player is still in process of maturing. They're still gaining and growing versus you're slowing down in that pathway. Um, that wasn't high tech. That wasn't, I mean, that, that's at every half of homes in America where parents are writing the, you know, the little line on the wall checking pathway, right? So then it goes from that. So, all right, well, that's one thing of, of let's just say, uh, um, uh, anthrometrics, right? Uh, now, if I look at some kinetic variable help this, well, can we, can we measure or look at who's our most powerful on the team? Um, or all right, we have throwing velocity, those things. Um, we have some weight room outcomes we can look at. So we just said, all right, can we do something again, just making things uh, even across the board? Are, are there measures of strength we could do that either body weight or relative to weight um, that I can assess this player from one day to the next or from period to the next to see if there is growth in their strength levels along with their anthrometric growth? Um, are they staying the same? If I can, you know, if my max is uh, throughout random exercise, say bench press, if I can bench 100 pounds and I'm 100 pounds and I go to 120, I'm still benching 100 pounds, relative, relatively, I'm weaker, even though I'm the same absolute strength. Um, and so I think that's where we started finding on, oh, well, this player threw it as hard. Well, they just grew two inches and put on 15 pounds don't we hope that something improves from that? Um, because again, you sign them at 15, 16, hoping that when they're 22, that there's a, there's a, an, an escalator of skills that are coming with that um, and ability to come with that so that they're better at 22. Um, and so I really started to take a step backwards in that scenario saying I have limited resources um, and a lot of questions, a lot of athletes, how do I get the most out of it? And so I started with pen and paper. Then it said, well, this is tough to do. So how do I get on you know, Excel and Google Sheets and whatever it may be. Um, and there was one point I got my, this is my third spring training with the Dodgers. We had a, a pitcher, it was double A at the time, uh, was a, he was above three, five GPA at Baylor. Um, and he was an accounting major, something like that. I remember asking him for help in one of my Excel spreadsheets during spring training. Try, <laughs> he comes over, oh, tippy tappy, tippy tappy. And I think it was just some, uh, it might've been a sum if or something like that, something pretty, relatively simple, um, where I just started going, oh man, that was just a couple of clicks and you got everything I needed there done in seconds. Man, I wish I had more tools like this. So I said, man, I better start learning Excel. So YouTube's an amazing thing. <laughs> the internet's an amazing place. I start looking at resources for learning, uh, online courses, things like that. And just honestly, a lot of them are free, just tutorials um, and dedicated myself to putting in the time to learn some of these skills because it wasn't about learning Excel. And at this point now I've been learning a uh, programming language R. It's not about that. It's about what can I do with it to go take that and use it. Um, and so from tracking body weights, well, shoot, if I can just keep writing these things down, put an Excel sheet, I have percent change and difference. I have up and down <laughs> trends. It, I have this valuable information that I can quickly turn around and say, hey, scout, hey, coach, hey, general manager, Here's the information you were looking for. Here's a, you had a question about the physical part adding into their tactical and, and their game. You know, here's that information that's changed about their physical piece. So when you're visualizing this player as a whole, 
understand this part's changed or understand where this part lies now. Um, and that really opened my eyes to just how those conversations change with those stakeholders where stop being uh, grasping for straws and just reaching in the air like, oh, I think this, I think that to going, well, we know this, we know that I've monitored this and I've seen that now let's put our abstract brain to work and start to put these pieces together. Um, and, and so again, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't an accounting major. I wasn't a computer science major in college. It was, there was a need to answer questions and I found out there was tools out there to help get those jobs done. So I better get damn good with those tools so I can get the job done better. And what I love there is that you started off and we had, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Coach uh, Tofi Zimnicki is now at Team Builder. He was with me at Yale talking about the best data and the best visualizations result in conversations you wouldn't have had before because you take unlimited combinations and possibility training, recovery, all these things that you mentioned that you can put into your 20 hours or you know 24 hours in a day and really say, okay, given what we know, here may be the 10 things that we should talk about and then with context, add that to our athlete. And I think that that's so critical because right now, what I kind of, I see happening is people go, we're gonna collect all this data and we're gonna shake the magic eight ball in machine learning and then all of our solutions will fall out. But if your solution falls out that like, hey, your athlete's weak or hey, your athlete just grew two inches in four months, there's always going to be an action required. And so if the data says you need to have a nutritionist, but you don't, you would be better off saying, okay, what are the things that I can address? Or what are the things that are constantly coming up? So I know where to either put my time and resources. Maybe in that situation you talked about earlier, it was like, we should get two squat racks or we should get, you know, more paper or whatever the thing is. And I think that that's so critical because it does you no good to say, oh, our athletes are slow and they're weak. Great. My athlete isn't strong enough to meet the demands of the current sport level. Awesome. Like I want solutions and, and in order to do that, you have to sit with your shareholders. You have to sit there and have conversations and game plans, just like a coach would do in a game. We have a general strategy, but you have to iterate and you have to audible throughout your time. Well, the same thing should happen in player development, but if you can't have those honest conversations because you didn't track, because you had an ego that everybody's gonna Olympic lift or everybody's gonna power lift, then you really miss out on what this is all about, which is what's best for the athlete. Because as you mentioned, whatever you do, if you get more NBA players to their second contract, that is better than the best laden plan where 90% of them flame out in the first year because they actually just don't like you as a coach because they don't want to come in because you can't build a relationship. And so really, let's have an honest conversation of what are we trying to do as a program? And I'd love to kind of segue that into you, you mentioned you worked in this kind of small setting where you built stuff and you worked with your coaches, but then you did go into a new role where really you started interacting with a lot more um, shareholders. And I think that this, and the way you put it um, is so succinct and great. I'm not going to try to say it myself, but um, how do you get an entire department or institution or organization on board? Because right now people don't think about chain of command. People don't think about sharing information. They don't think about what if the data says something not good, about the state of the athlete or the state of the department that, you know, is supposed to do mobility or supposed to do strength. Could you kind of walk through that kind of story and kind of your thoughts on that paradigm? Yeah. So I think that's, that's actually kind of where my mind was going next there anyway. So uh, I apologize. I jumped through this. So my kind of career pathway, um, so I'm going to play college baseball, um, got into coaching in the private sector in, in Colorado, then I uh, was with the Dodgers for three and a half years in their Marlins system. Um, and then with the Brooklyn Nets uh, for two, two seasons, 
as their assistant strength coach in sports science. Um, and then after that, uh, I took a role at University of California in San Diego um, through a few different iterations of title, title there, but essentially it was finished out as a director of sports science. Um, and that was really the the tipping point in my quote unquote sports science journey, um, or as, as an applied sports scientist. Um, and I say that because of what you just said of the expectation of what sports science and or the data should is, is going to bring quote unquote or should bring um and then the outcomes of that right so there, there's an investment in time of just collecting data as you said like do, if i know that let's throw it out there let's just say rpes are important um and let's for oh goodness that the coach actually would say oh yeah i want to know how the players felt today very simple question. How was practice today? Great. Give me, hey, here's a one to 10, uh, six to 20, whatever your scale you're using. Hey, give me a, give me a scale here and tell me how it was. And the coach can at least it, you know, anecdotally go, all right, Johnny looked good. Sally looked fine. No, Timmy didn't do well with that. Didn't like it. Conversation started, right? We do it every day. We say, hey, how are you feeling? How's it going? How was yesterday? How was the workout? So I, I use that same analogy with our coaches at San Diego. When I got there, I said the whole point of this is you as a coach, again, you're you're whether you use the captain of the boat analogy or the CEO, whatever, you're making these broad decisions that dictate where we're going as a group and 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 uh, not only dictates outwardly where we're going, but uh, disseminates within of how we're doing things, what's acceptable, what are expectations of us, um, and how are we being evaluated? Because that impacts us individually as humans. When we when we have expectations of our of our environment, or we know what the expectations are and how we're going to make our own decisions and, and try to impact that, um, and so our goal was, and I explained to them, the goal was again not to collect a bunch of data, shake the eight ball, and hey, this this notification on your phone is going to pop up and says, don't start Timmy and start Johnny instead at right wing. It doesn't work that way, um, at least not at this point. Um, and so there was very clear in the beginning, we can't have that mindset. We can't have that, that uh, ideology. The, the important part of what we're trying to do is, do we have the right information to answer the important questions when we need to answer them so we can do the best for our athletes? And it really started with athlete well care, welfare and, and care. Um, if we don't have the best of our athletes as often as possible, it's hard to ask the best of them as often as possible. Um, or expect the best of them as often as possible. And especially in that scenario, uh, that school, Division two school transition to Division one, uh, mid-major, small, low major, I'm going to call that. Um, and particularly some of the, uh, the sports like baseball, that's a national recruited heavy conference. That's a very strong conference. Uh, women's soccer, some strong teams, our strong teams in that conference that we're going from Division two to Division one. We're going to make that jump. And the, the vision of the athletic director was we want to be competitive right away, but we're not going to do it in a manner in which, you know, some schools have, have done or programs have done where, hey, how do we get the most out of these recruiting loopholes and blah, blah, uh, because it's very strict academically just to get in there. So we have a limited recruiting pool. It's similar to Yale, like you only get these certain kids in here. Um, and so you get the best of the ones you can with the ones that can get in, right? And so once we've got these ones in, we know they're dedicated, we know they're intelligent, all these things of, well, how do we get the best information day to day and get the best out of them to help them again, be the best athletes and student athletes they can be. And then they'll be able to compete as best they can for us. Um, and really how do we take 
some of these athletes that might have been uh, a, a walk-on or even a, you know into the bench person at a mid or sorry a high major um, that we might have been lucky enough because they're academically or mentally inclined to get into our school that that might have been a project for that high major um, but for us and that they don't have time and might not develop them or we have time to make that emphasis to develop our athletes to get the best out of them they go wow if we could have had that kid you know, as a freshman and got that that would have been great that that was our goal was to have that envy of development and so and it started with athlete welfare uh, in, in healthcare. So we said, all right, well, what, again, what are these limitations on our athletes, our student athletes, their, their sleep, their lifestyle, they're away from home for the first time, all these things. Um, and so our, our mission with the coaches in the beginning was let's have a best understanding as we can of athlete readiness and preparedness. Let's just start with that. Because you're, you're dictating a program and you're writing uh, a practice plan and looking at a season doing an annual plan without knowing the inputs of what's going into that system. Um, and not that everything has to fluctuate day to day, so to speak. But again, if I can identify trends that say that my plan isn't exactly where I want it to go, or I could have got more out of it. That to me, that was one thing to the coaches of like, when can I get more? When do I back off? Let's just start with that. And I think a lot of coaches, when you ask, how's your program going? I've never met a coach who goes, my program is complete trash. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Every day I'm just throwing stuff against the wall. But to your point, like, especially in healthy 18 to 21 year olds, they're pretty resilient. Like you can almost do anything and it might make them better. It might make them worse. But when you're trying to get that two standard deviation adaptation positively and trying to avoid the maladaptation, if you're not monitoring it, and again, you can have a bad lift, you can have a bad training session here or there. But if you start seeing that more often than not, there was a more optimal solution. Yes, I, people's, uh, my athletes got 13% stronger in their four years. Is that something you're proud of? Or is that something you're actively working on to try to, you know, improve and like percent of what, you know, bicep curls, back squats. Yeah. So you need to have these contacts, but I applaud you for trying to track it. But I think you hit it right there is that, you know, every day you have a chance to look back, audit what you did and say, did it go the way I expected? And more importantly, are we still to your analogy before, if we're heading, you know, due North or trying to go from LA to Boston, three, three degrees is going to really make a significant difference. Yeah. So I, I think you hit that, you know, spot on um, in that description. And I just want to know though, when you do that, how did you handle different shareholders that maybe didn't want to have the oversight? Because that is one of the unfortunate yeah. things of data. You're going to see stuff. You're going to see stuff coming early. It's like radar. And you need to have a plan that when we get to a certain point, we're going to trip some actions and, and we're going to have conversations. How did you handle that, especially for individuals that were, that were either resistant because they were, quote unquote, old school. They follow their gut. Um, or two, that, you know, you had a department that was maybe underperforming, not maliciously, but just sometimes it happens. How did you handle those conversations? Uh, it goes back to expectations and resources. And so I, one, um, clear expectations and then identifying, or sorry, setting clear expectations to those coaches of what our outcomes or what our process would be. Um, but then myself in expectations of those coaches. So again, identifying who were, where were my low hanging fruits and easy wins? Where are my, my points of resistance? And where, who were those that were on the fence or just kind of bad, whatever. Um, and that was something I actually worked with our associate AD, Matt Chris, um, of really kind of polling, just anecdotally and softly polling and, and, and uh, questioning and just 
conversating with those coaches after I was introduced to the department. Hey, here's Lauren. He does sports science stuff. Here's some graphs he did with the nets. Here's some fancy things he can do. You guys have fun with them. Right. And then some coaches right away. Oh man. Like we had an assistant softball coach who he actually works in accounting. He was all geeked up and was like, Awesome. I've got someone to help numbers. I've been doing these charts by hand and put it in my Excel and I still have a full-time job. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, great. But to, to the point of like, uh, there was a lot of things there that were reaching and doing things to do them because I was looking for some sort of information outcomes, but it wasn't as focused as it could be or as uh, uh, actionable as it could be. It was more of just kind of tracking to track. Um, and then there were other coaches, again, I got a feel, whatever. So the idea was identify the coaches that we had low-hanging fruit. And by low-hanging fruit, I mean the ones that we could actually have actionable, uh, take action steps with and have actual outcomes from. And then identify uh, others that, again, maybe weren't as broad sweeping across the teams. Um, so, for example, and this isn't any, the, the coach by any means, this is really just a matter of scenario, but our soccer teams, you know, our, our department invested money into GPS for soccer and, and wearables for basketball. Um, that's a lot of information that is accessible now, but does that impact the coach's day-to-day decision-making just because we have it now? No, we've been doing it for years without it. But with sitting, watching, talking, or watching practice, talking with the coaches, understanding the team, he goes, yeah, I'm changing this player from this position to that position, but he's had a history of these hamstrings and I haven't, he hasn't got as much playing time as I would have liked, but this guy's senior graduating. So he's going to have to, that's our best person coming to fill that position. And I go, well, what's the difference in those positions? Oh, well, there's a lot more up and down, run up the pitch, got to cover more ground. Oh, sounds like a lot more high speed running. Oh yeah. He's got to get on his horse and go from this one. You know, again, nothing technical, just He's, he's got to cover more distance, got to run. Um, I go, okay, we just have the history of hamstrings, right? And he was in a different position that had less high-speed running involved. Um, is that something we communicate with the strength coach and our athletic trainers? Oh, uh, yeah, I was going to talk to him about it. I mean, I'm really not really sure if that really matters, but, you know, he's working on summer programs, so he'll be good to go. And I go, I think this player's going to need something specific to them, seeing as how they already couldn't handle the demands of the position they were in, and you're going to put them in a more demanding position. We have people and resources and tools for this, i.e. strength coach, athletic trainer, that can help adapt this player to have be more resilient to those things and have a better chance of outcomes. Simple conversation, no, nothing needed there, but what was able to do with the technology, the data now was going, all right, who was the player that was in that position before? Pull up their data, let's look at their norms of high-speed running, their distances, their max speeds, compared to this player that we have now. Oh, max speed, about the same. I see why he thinks he can play in that position just as fast as he is. Probably sure there's some skill aspects there. Total distance and yardage, you know, in, in the game is different. Well, it's different positions, so we know that. Um, amount of high-speed runs, okay? Different. So now the strength coach and athletic trainer can say, all right, we need to up the resiliency to these, these KPIs that we know we're going to necessity. Again, if he can run farther and faster, does that make him a better footballer? Not necessarily, no. But he'll have the ability to compete and gain the skills needed at that position at that time. Now, conversely, on a broader spectrum of, of impact, we had really low hanging fruit with our cross country team. And again, this is not high tech. This is actually low tech. He just wanted a wellness questionnaire. I want to know how my athletes are responding to training. I've got this annual training program. I've got the mileage and our, 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 our tapers. I've got all these things planned out. But what I've always noticed is throughout the years, there's times of the year where they don't respond to the training as I expect them to. And I have a feeling that a lot of it is, I mean, because again, it's track. Um, and he's and he's actually great. He's at every lift. He knows what they're doing in the weight room. He's at all their runs, all these things. 
And he's going, I know what's outside of here because I only have them again for eight, 20 hours a week. There's 24 hours in a day. Um, and so we started with a simple Google Sheets questionnaire. How are you feeling? How did you sleep last night? Are you sore? And then a little comments thing. And this was actually the impetus of a lot of stuff that happened for later on in the next couple of years um, because we had success with it in the sense of the coach had a plan of action or had a plan, excuse me, that he had questions to and gaps that he wanted to fill in to improve that plan. We had tools and resources that we could use to identify points of, of interjection or points of change. And again, nothing crazy here, no fancy algorithms. We did a one to five scale. And what happened throughout that year was we, we did a simple uh, Google Sheet survey. It took me, I don't know, 20 minutes to make and send out to the athletes. Um, send out to the athletes, you go about two weeks of it. And I say, all right, coach, you know, here's the number of responses we've had. Here's the, the actual um, uh, volume of feedback we're getting. These athletes did it every day. These ones didn't. So he follows up with, hey, athletes, I need these, you know, regularly. I'm checking them. I actually am checking them. So he just starts just to really reinforce it to going in now talking with players. Hey, I saw you did or didn't do your sleep uh, this, or I saw you, you know, put your sleep at this level, or I saw you, you, you commented on that. You want to talk about it, right? Very simple, not even really interjecting, just conversation starters. Um, so then it goes, well, some of the athletes going, oh, well, I didn't quite understand that question or I was answering it a bit differently. So I get that feedback to me. Oh, okay, great. Now I can adapt these questionnaires to make sure we're getting the, the communication we want out of it. So we went from a number scale to happy faces and colors to changing the wording of the questions um, to then get point, all right, now we're getting feedback from these athletes every day. The coach is getting an Excel sheet report every day. He goes, wow, this is great. I've got all this information. I'm getting comments, but it's pretty hard to read through an Excel spreadsheet to see each of these answers, blah, blah. Can we clean this up, the data up a bit? So now it's just a bit easier to snatch it from like, oh, a dashboard. That's a wonderful idea. Let's, let's do that. So now I have these Excel spreadsheets. And again, I, I can use, uh, I can make graphs in Excel but how am I sharing those and those things? So then it was a Google Sheets, um, one that could be shared. Well, then questions were brought up from different stakeholders, athletic training, and, and I mean, all right, well, is this HIPAA or FERPA? Is it, you know, all these things, right? And, and legitimate questions are all legitimate pieces. I go, wonderful, great question. I'm glad we're all thinking on the same page now um, because we have a lot of data points that interject with these questionnaires when they're talking about their sleep and their recovery, huh, that might be something that our dietitian or athletic trainers might have input on of why that might've changed. Um, did, uh, again, you can go down the line with all those questions there and saying, all right, well, our other stakeholders actually have information that feeds into these, these responses or gives insight to these responses that the coach is now seeing summarized in a non-specific way. Um, and so the, the question got to the point of, right, well, who do I go to now and talk to when I see that their sleep is down? You can talk to the athlete first. When the athlete goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, my class schedule was this, and I had finals. And that really what came down to a lot of it was I had finals. I had girlfriend, boyfriend, grandma was sick. You know, all these things that we can't control as coaches. That we're, not, that we're not in charge of life, right? Um, but we are trying to do our best for the athletes. And if I knew that they had this big test coming up and I had their hardest training session lined up on this day because it's Thursday and that's how I've always done it, knowing that we could have done it Friday, 
or the athlete goes, I could do it Wednesday so I can take the time, blah, blah. It just became that much more actionable or our actions became that much more insightful um, and impactful because we had a plan with more information to, to put into place there. Um, and it led us down the line of saying, leading to, to specific communication points and specific outlets of this information. So who sees what and how does it transfer to who? So obviously our medical HIPAA stuff went through athletic trainers and they know how and what they can disseminate to the coaches. There's certain information uh, data that they, that was in their um, uh, release form to the, uh, to the department in the beginning of the year that the athletes signed off on, parents signed off on that says, yes, you can or cannot see this certain information. Um, so the athlete knows exactly what's being collected and who can see it. There's clear lines of uh, the athlete can see, or sorry, the coach can see, let's say, uh, an aggregate average or, or, or change in average of uh, body weight or, or team, um, some anthropometric data, but does not see the raw you know, data day by day, the athletic trainer can, or the dietitian can, or the dietitian can talk with the athlete about, or, or sports psych can talk with the athlete about maybe mental health issues or, or disorder, even things like that, that's within their scope, scope and, and their profession that can then talk to the head coach, say, hey coaches, so you know, we're working on something right now. It might impact training. Let's stay away from, or let's slide a limit, let's say calorie expenditure or time on feed or something of that nature that they can help give to the outcomes versus all the data we have. And so um, again, point of the story was that there, there was low hanging, high hanging fruit, all these different things. It was identify the problem or identify questions that we now needed to develop hypotheses and find answers and, and resolutions for. And it was different across the different levels. But what happened was when we had such success with the cross country team, and the coach is going, oh, this is great. Not only am I getting information on training, I've reduced injuries. And then the injuries I do have, we've gotten them back faster than we did in the past because I'm communicating with our athletic trainers and strength coaches. I know where they're at. And I, they know where my program is and what I expect of them. They know what mile I need to get back to, all these things. It, it would became part of the recruiting pitch. He had me coming in to show recruits of, hey, here's this wellness sheet. And then we're actually going to get this app next year and blah, 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 blah. Um, for the other coaches are going, oh, that looked really good. That sounded good. Now, again, there's different demands in sports, but it was it was a, a, a easier win to get momentum in that direction to show proof positive of, of what we could do. Yeah, and I think when you talk about each department having that different data set, it wasn't that they get it and they live in their silo, because I think that's what off, often kills a lot of organizations that people live in their little you know silo. And if they choose to act, um, they will or will not. And I know in defense of the sport coach, someone's getting fired if they don't win. And so you have this dichotomy of we want health and wellness for the athlete, but there needs to be a separation of church and state. And then we've got each subdivision that has a role and responsibility. But I love how you talked about you're getting this data. This is in your wheelhouse. Hey, coach, we're working on this. And I think that when you can get a sport coach or you can get an organization to all buy into not only are we acting on this, we care about the athlete. We know that this is best for them. We know that they want to participate. And, and sometimes though, frankly, they need to not participate because as you mentioned, there's other things going on. But when you have a nomenclature, when you have a language where everyone understands what actions are being taken, what information is being analyzed, I think it calms a lot of the anxiety. And if you haven't had a chance to experience this, oftentimes in you know an athletic situation, it's happened so fast, things are moving so quickly, and you get into playoffs or you get into critical game. Well, where's this? Where are they at? 
what's good? How are we doing? There's this kind of frenetic energy that always kind of follows a team. And so if you're in the role of sports performance or as a data scientist, you really have a great opportunity to be a leader and a connector of different um, subdivisions into kind of the larger composite. And I think at the end of the day, the athletes really appreciate the effort. You know, when you switched from one through 10 or six through 20 to smiley faces, athletes saw that. When you changed the wording, and I'm sure it was wordsmithing down to like the specific yeah. order, <laughs> it's less right or wrong that the way the question was asked, but you took the time to then take their feedback. And, and more and more, I see, you know, giving athletes a 10% autonomy or 10% stake in their plan will give you a thousand percent return in their willingness to buy in. And that's really when we look at what data should be doing, it should be driving buy-in, driving culture, facilitating conversations and creating the best possible paradigm for that individual. It's kind of funny. We got to a point, we mentioned the buy-in and, and again, well, and that takes with a grain of salt in the sense of the, the athletes we had there. Again, we had a number of students that were data science majors or <laughs> so it was somewhat intriguing to them. Um, but again, because of that, I knew I can go to them and say, hey, what you guys see what I'm working on? This is for you, by the way. Like, but you see what this is? Like, this, oh, that's cool. What are you, what are you writing that in your program? How'd you create that? This and that, great. What's that for? Um, and start to have those conversation discussions where we had athletes because they were got to the point of understanding why we were doing it, they wanted to do it for themselves. So even in periods where we couldn't collect data, whether it been off-season times outside of care, blah, 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 they still wanted to do it because they were checking for themselves. Because what I did also in that same manner was I made their data accessible to them. Um, and this is where it gets, you know, why, why, it's, why these athlete managers and things are becoming so uh, impactful, why it's so prevalent is because what they allow for security, role level security of, of data and things like that. Um, but to say, yeah, you can and you can't see this certain data. Well, when those athletes at any point in time could pull up and say, man, how far did I run today? Or I feel like I've been getting bad sleep this week. You know what? Looking at my thing. Yeah, I've had four straight days of subpar sleep. My average is this like. What am I doing? Uh, and so I read it up in the sense of I had a, we had a great case study um, uh, that uh, one of our cross-country runners had a stress fracture, um, partial stress reaction, and, and Achilles partial rupture. Um, and during her return to run, uh, you know, post-acute treatment, all that stuff, but in her return to, to run program, um, she, I mean, she was looked like a guinea pig in, in, in a lab kind of luckily with a lot of our equipment was wireless, but she had ankle accelerometers on, um, would occasionally wear the GPS just for a bit more accurate tracking of distance and velocities. Um, but she was going from uh, overground running on grass barefoot on certain days to um, stair or hill runs on certain days to her longer uh, distance runs as those built up. And then there was also pool uh, aquatics that we were doing. And so the reason we had, I mentioned those four is because those were all discussed one with the coach of what's their intensity of their overground runs expected them when they're running, but then what's our normal training look like she has to return to with the team, but what training is needed for her from a strength standpoint. And then how are we going to bridge her deficits in strength and resiliency to match up with the needs of building those demands of volume and yards she needs to get for her sport. And there was this constant, I shouldn't say constant, these uh, consistent and periodic meetings between myself, the athletic trainer, the strength coach, and the team coach to say, 
all right, coach, when's the season start? What should, would this progression look like? Normally, I wish you to get to, to, all right, well, where are we at strength-wise in her program and development or, or progress? Where can she handle and how is she responding to these stressors right outside a trainer? And then from herself as well. And it got to the point where with the you know, simple data from the, the wellness questionnaires that I didn't even ask her, she kept doing it on her own because um, she said it was kind of her mental check-in daily uh, to along with the, the uh, the, the kinetic data and some of the kinematic data we were getting um, said after the first, I think it was three weeks, um, we noticed that there's an increase uh, in your stress responses. Your, um, your, so we were doing part of those force plate jumps. Um, and so RSI would be down. We show greater asymmetries. Um, and then even her, her own self-reported responses, um, soreness, sleep things, uh, they were elevated after her longer runs on our overground runs um and they were uh actually alleviated and improved after her pool workouts um and then the overground run on the grass and the stairs were kind of just in between those were just normal she could handle those fine they felt like normal training um and so what we found was that we were able to again if we wanted to overreach and peak on stress we knew what the most stressful thing was and we knew how she responded to it when she was most likely needing of, of recovery time post um and then those times we wanted to let's say increase consistency of stimulus well we can do that with those the grass and the stairs without the negligible effects that we did from the longer run so i might be able to get a longer run at a distance on on this day but i know the day after she's not going to have it in her so if i want to get build her up doing three four days training in a row i should probably save that long run for the last day of it or input that lower level training day of the, of the pool after that long run training day as a as a uh, again almost a a therapeutic session so that she can go Monday through Thursday like we wanted to instead of her having to take a day off on Tuesday or Wednesday because of the long run. Um, and so now we're able to do show it back to her. She goes, oh yeah, no, I, I get that. I feel that. I feel better after the pool days. So then we just said, all right, well, how would you make your week if you wanted to? We wanted to get, because we did three days of training last week, we want to get to four now. We want to get to five next. So how would you line up four days of training for yourself? Oh, I think I would like to do this, this, and that. Great. Let's do it. Right? Oh, I can do what I wanted. Yeah. It all fits within. We gave you the we gave you the parameters to fit it within. You made the choice. Let's go do it, and let's see how it feels, right? And we just with that, like I said, that that little instance of no, this is your body, your program. We're here as professionals to give you insight and information. And the coach is here to help guide you along the way for you to go compete, for you to use your body in the way it was given to you. Um, and so that to me was, I mean, it's one of our best examples we've had. But there was again communication of specific things again the coach to expectations of, out, of competition outcomes, the athletic trainer of understanding uh, of where the athlete was at in response to that stress and modalities for treatment of it, the strength coach for implementing specific stressors that either included the sport or outside of it. Um, and then myself as the, as the communicator of the data to make sure that people got the right information in the right fashion they needed to, to make those decisions. Um, and, and again, it was it felt seamless to the point you know, where the athlete was dictating the rehab to a degree uh, based on the parameters that we set. Yeah, and I think if you're not sure whether or not your program has kind of reached this kind of pinnacle that you're talking about, just ask your athletes. You know, I number of time I've been asked, come in, take a look at the program, see what you think. I'll grab a freshman, I'll grab a first year, grab a senior. What are you doing today? Working out. Why are you doing it? Don't get yelled at. Okay, cool. 
All right. That's <laughs> compliance. Fine. Um, why are you lifting? Uh, well, I have to work on speed. Okay, cool. Why are you doing it this way? Why is he's working on speed? Why? Oh, this is my plan. And so the more that the athletes buy in or understand and understanding too, some athletes just want to be told what to do. And I get that. Um, but you still have to drive that intentionality because I can have you squat, curl, twist, turn, pull, whatever. But there is something to be said for the intentionality in which you do it, especially at higher velocities, at higher forces, or any kind of corrective where you're really trying to hit a specific angle group, or you're getting some specific outcome. So, um, you know, word of the wise, when you're looking at your program before you move forward, double back and check to see do your athletes at the end of the day understand what you're doing or are you just being busy to be busy are you collecting data just so you look good because as you mentioned i mean the number of coaches i had they're like yo top just red yellow green man red yellow green and if there's any reds maybe we do a deep dive but i just want to know like love them up need to be weary of it or you know do we have to get after them because either they're having an issue or maybe our positional coaches are overdoing it red yellow green and that's that's all that they needed but you know, I think data has really evolved, especially in the last five or six years, and particularly now with, you know, our technology and, and other technologies, um, we're really kind of at the, the infancy here of what this is going to look like and how to appropriately apply it. If you kind of had to have a, you know, a 30,000 foot view and you're looking out to the future, what do you envision data science or sports science looking like here? Um, over the next couple of years? Is it a separate industry? I know the NSCA is making a new certification. Um, you know, we still have a whole industry that is, you know, below the minimum wage and strength and conditioning. Are they going to get coached up? Um, or do you see that there's going to be kind of a, a whole new um, kind of position made where you do have to wear? Because again, you're not typical. You There's not a lot of people like you that can go on both sides to integrate. So where do you kind of, you know, see this going? So I think there's a transition happening right now already. And there's, there's honestly, there's a bit of uh, nomenclature involved and in, in, in titling roles uh, because there's, there's just so many of them. I mean, we see the same in strength conditioning, like there's strength coach, performance coach, uh, athletic development coach, um, whatever. It, the idea is that again, we have in the structure of these teams, there's roles, right? There's leadership roles, there's players and there's player development roles. Um, and what I see happening within this term of sports science, um, in the field, there's, there's roles there, there's research and then there's applied science. And that applied science, that ecological science, um, while similar to the research science, re researchers that are out there, it's not the same, right? We know that within sport, there are these variables and constraints that we have no control of. Some of them may or may not be measurable. Right? Whereas on the research side, we purposely create constraints and create these limitations to identify exactly what we're looking at to analyze that to best degree. Now, again, we can look at similar topics. We can look at similar uh, questions and hypotheses, let's just say, but the, the way in which we're going to find answers and the answers that come about that are going to be different. And so what I see happening in the sports science, ecological science side of this is it's not going to be as much about the big data per se, or the even the, as, as much of the uh, analytical skills. I honestly think um, where the research is going and where big data is going, 
the the idea of all of this automation, the the uh, uh, AI, um, the algorithmic thinking that that we're putting in place there, I think that's going to lead us to some generally good broad uh, processes and outcomes that those ecological scientists and, and the ones within the team setting will have the knowledge of how to disseminate that and impact those shareholders and coaches the best they can. And so if you think about it from a professional team structure, you have ownership and then you have that leadership group, right? Your general managers and things like that. And then you have your coaches uh, and your head coach is your tactician or most, mostly um, a strategist and then technical coaches in between that and every players. Um, I see it as that a performance coach, athletic training, those are technical coaches. They have specific modalities that impact the athlete's ability to perform, um, their development processes, um, but then the coaches, the, the tactical coaches now take and apply in strategy and tactics um, that the general manager now is looking, again, generally over the entirety of the team and saying, how are these pieces working together and are we getting the outcomes we want? And I think on a sub-level that that sports scientist ends up being these performance manager roles. And I've seen the title come about a few times and we see high performance managers and things like that. Um, and, and I think there's internationally across different models, there's, there's different ways in which the iteration comes about. Um, but I think the evolution is getting more towards these sports scientists, quote unquote, being uh, these people who have a broad understanding of these different branches of athlete performance that can understand the information, not again, not to the practitioner's level, um, but understand the, the, uh, the constraints of the data that's coming in, the, the uh, variables amongst that data and how it should be represented to those professionals so that they can implement where they want, how they want to, um, and that they interact with them to get the best information they can again within the ecological environment. I think what we see now in some of the, the, the quote unquote issues um, is that because there's not as many uh, researchers that have the practical experience that I have, the applied experience that I have, um, I don't have the research and the, the academic background I'm working on getting to that level, but that, that they have. Um, it's hard to blend those worlds together. And so when sporting teams go, man, we want the smartest and the brightest, so I'm gonna go get this researcher it doesn't quite fulfill their need because the applied side isn't there because that researcher is spending so much time worrying about constraints and worrying about <laughs> these, these variables that they can't control versus ecologically going back to answering the questions there and, and really being resourceful and creative to find a way to answer those questions versus trying to change the question. Um, and so I think that that's where we, we kind of hit this point in the, in the industry where you have people getting a bad taste in their mouth because they might have hired uh, a person with right knowledge, but maybe not the right experience for a position, or hired a person with great experience, but not the right knowledge background for, for that position. But really, at the end of the day, we're looking for someone that can aggregate information that's impactful to those coaches, can disseminate that information to them so that they can do their jobs as best as they can. Um, and, and really, I got great cracks in that with the Nets. And the reason I got developed some is because I was in that hybrid role where our our head strength coach slash sports science um, would be in the meetings with the coaches. He's in the daily news, head coaches and whatnot, talking about game plans and everything else. I had to do the data collection, organization, everything else, right? So I'd get this high level conversation from our, our head strength coach comes back in and talks to me, oh, coaches are talking about this and that again. They went to this that athlete. And I'm pretty sure that's not the case. What's the data? And I pull the data up for him, right? Or the athlete goes, hey, Lauren, what are we doing with all this stuff? Oh, great, sure. I'll show you. Assistant coach, 
hey, yeah, actually, you know what? I was playing a game with the athlete today. We said we wanted to keep it light. I told him I'd keep his player load to X amount or whatever load, this amount. How far off was I? Right. And we're just creating these connection points with the information that's there. It's not about the data. It's about what we're trying to do with it. Um, and so the, the idea is that these roles, these, these performance manager roles, are really about how is the data being utilized and what data is worthwhile. And the only way we know that is by interacting with those stakeholders and with the athletes to get feedback on that. Because if we're collecting data and it's not getting used, either one, they don't know how to use it, or two, or I say one A or one B, they don't know how to use it or it ain't impactful, one of the two. Um, and so we need to understand if there's sound research that says this is impactful data and we need to learn how to apply it, apply it or implement it within our in our spectrum as one thing or we have data out there because these algorithms gave it to us or because this company has it but we don't really know what to do with it are we the ones with the research on it are we the do we even know if it's worth our time um, and do we have the resources for it? so it, it, it really comes down to do we get the data that we need and are we using it because even with these quote unquote old school coaches that say they don't use and don't need data, I fight that every time with saying, well, then why do we have a scoreboard? Why do we have a clock? Why do we keep score? If the data doesn't matter because those are points of information that tell us who's the winner, how much time is left, how should I approach this game tactically? You are using data every day. And I, one of our data scientists, San Diego, told us this at the beginning of a, a talk she gave, lecture she gave, but we're all data scientists. If you've ever looked at your phone and saw what the weather was that day and decided to wear a sweater or a t-shirt, you're a data scientist. You took data, you applied it to your decision-making, you acted on it, and then you analyzed it. You went outside and you go, actually, it wasn't as cold as I thought it was gonna be. I'm gonna take the sweater off. Or, man, I'm glad I brought that sweater because it got pretty frigid out here, right? And it's just a matter of applying it. So if we overthink this again to go, oh, the technology, the technology is a means to get us data that we think is impactful. And honestly, the technology was usually developed by someone that had a very specific uh, application they wanted for it, found others that had similar need for it and said, this might be worthwhile spreading out there. And so now when we find someone that had a really good use case for it and had good results, we now are attaching those results to the data versus their application. Um, and so similarly with these sports scientists roles, everything else, we're going, oh, this sports scientist did this cool stuff over here, help that athlete, they should do that with us, maybe it was the approach that they used to get those outcomes of the athlete. And you're judging their ability off of those outcomes. So we just have to be careful with where we're applying the, the, uh, the blame and or the credit to things, to the processes and those, the, the stakeholders involved that use those tools. It's not the tool because the tool is pointless with no, if I got a drill and there's no juice going into it, no power electricity, it ain't gonna do much for me. And if I don't have bits, it ain't gonna do much for me. It's just, it's just, it's just an anonymous power device that can create some rotary torque with nothing to apply it to. Um, and so this idea of, of sports science in the field is really about, honestly, and, I, and I'm hoping to do this, creating, and I don't mean this in a, a boisterous way or uh, just a way, but more of myself. Like, I don't think I'm special in the sense of my brain or anything else. Um, again, I've been fortunate to be in environments where I was able to ask questions comfortably and safely to people that had either good experience or that were smart enough to help me refine questions to look in the right direction to keep looking for answers and help find an answer. Um, and that's where the success comes from. And uh, you mentioned this in the beginning, uh, this, you know, I, my humility is because I know I've been wrong. 
right? And I accept that and I expect it because if you're not trying things, if you're not asking questions, you're always right. If it's all theoretical, you're always right. And when you go and you try and like, oh, we're going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, this complex training and follow up this and that. And we're saying you jump higher. And then we get on the fourth place and we haven't jumped higher or we get, you know, look at these outcomes. Well, it didn't work. Try something else. Right. And that to me, that was, that's the biggest piece of it is, is we had this talk with our, our performance coaches at UC San Diego. Um, this, when I came in, it was very intimidating, obviously for them of, all right, we've got these, these high tech tools we've got to use now, this and that, blah, blah. You were not being evaluated and judged off of uh, player injuries. You're not being evaluated and judged off of wins and losses. You're not being evaluated and judged um, even off of games and strength. You're being evaluated and judged on your processes involved in those adaptations and changes. So we're giving you the ability to find, uh, to get information that gleans if your programming is working or not. You're being evaluated on how you are impacting your programming and your decision-making from the information that's available to you. Because if you say, I've been doing the same program because it works, and then we look at the information and it hasn't been working, and your response was, well, it's been working for years and it's just the athlete's fault, or it's just a matter of happenstance that everyone or these many people didn't get better. Um, or my favorite one you mentioned before, like, oh, well, these three athletes got 13% better. What about the other three? Uh, well, they didn't work hard enough or they didn't do this and that. Well, our job as coaches is to get the best out of them and put the constraints around them and the stimulus that we need to that patient want. So that means at some point we need to keep digging into our bag as coaches to get them to get the work stimulus that we needed for that patient we're going for. So whatever I shot out the first time for the first three worked great. Keep them doing what we're doing. There's other three, I got to find something else. That's how you're evaluated as a coach, or at least how we evaluated our coaches, was the processes. You're not going to hit everything right. You're going to miss. Did you adapt and did you change? Did you adjust your sights to keep trying to hit the target? That's what it comes down to. Well, that is a reading from the gospel there of how you approach <laughs> your craft, because I think I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just, you, you hit it right in the nail on the head and I think that as we continue to grow as a field and an industry, that humility is going to go a long way when we start adding the granularity of data, technology, and math. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's got to be integrated. It's got to be the juice within the drill, um, you know, not just saying that, oh, that that implement in and of itself um, is the best. It's still going to be put in the hand of someone who's going to have to use it. You know, you're still dealing with people. And no matter how technologically advanced the field becomes, it's still a industry based on relationships. And so the people that have the high enough EQ, uh, emotional intelligence, and the IQ to be able to apply it for what's best and do it with, as you mentioned right there, that humility of, okay, you know, what's your process? Can you find something better? Um, I think that's that's so well said. Well, listen, I could talk to you all day. I know a lot of time our customers want to reach out, our listeners want to reach out. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you if they have any follow-up questions? Um, yeah, so I, I try to, I'm not very good at staying or posting and, and reactive myself, uh, per se, but, um, my, uh, handle for uh, Instagram and Twitter is greenhouse underscore SP. Um, so greenhouse, one word, obviously like the, the structure, uh, underscore and SP, um, pretty easy to reach out that way. Or, or my, uh, email is 
lastname.firstnamegreen.lauren86 at gmail. Uh, feel free to reach out there. I love to talk and, and talk shop and, and get to know people. So yeah, feel free to, to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and we'll talk to you guys next week.